We're continuing study. If you've been with us, you know God's plan for a healthy church. A study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and we're in this section called spiritual warfare. Really picks up in chapter ten, first verse, and works its way through, and then really directly marking true or false as our subtitle for today. So. If you take notes, you can find those on the back of your bulletin. If you need a bulletin, it's right there in the back. Feel free to get one. We're going to return to this uh, verse-by-verse study. I'd like you to read with me. We're going to pick up in verse 7, if you would, and we're going to read all the way through the end of this chapter as that's our next section under uh, our study. We finished up the introduction, really gave us some groundwork, and if you've missed any of that, you can pick that up on YouTube or you can follow it on Spotify, our podcast, and catch up where we've been. Verse 7, so we're picking up on we read in the New American Standard. You can find that around you if you'd like it, or just read and, and from the passage that you normally study and mem- memorize, and I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. Picking up, you are looking at things as they are outwardly, Paul says. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself. But just as he is Christ, so also are we, verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Verse 9, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Verse 11, let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters, when absent such persons, we also are, we are also indeed when present. Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some who, of those who commend themselves, but when we, they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. Verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, verse 18, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commends. Stop right there. It is our desire, of course, to break this verse down. It seems a little complex at first, so what we're going to do is, as we always do, work our way through, give some handholds to the passage, and begin to understand what Paul has intent for the church in Corinth to understand, which is the same thing he wants for us and the Holy Spirit wants for us to understand whatever it meant then. Is the same thing it means now, and so we can pull those things knowing that the Lord has accomplished and will accomplish what he wants through his word. Sometimes we run into things that are not as they appear. What's on the outside is not indicative of what's on the inside. A dog had a toy cactus, and on the inside of the toy cactus there was a sad cactus, and the dog ripped it open and found out that there was one in there, to the surprise of its owner. A CT scan of a thousand-year-old Buddha sculpture reveals a mummified monk hidden inside. Hopefully he was dead when they put him in there. A guy cuts a tree down in his yard, and there's a golf ball in the middle of it. This is probably what they mean at uh, Kroger when they say two for one. How about this super glue dispenser from the U.S.? Somebody cuts it open. It actually has Russian writing. It's a Russian variety. 
inside of a snap bracelet is from a tape measure. That makes sense, doesn't it? I looked at that, I just thought, of course that is. I mean, that, what else would be used? And those things are humorous, but um, I think they're analogous to Paul's emphasis in this next section. We've noted in, in this section that Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to uh, document the reality of spiritual warfare. Uh, we also noted that uh, these four remaining chapters, Paul is dealing with a remnant of troublemakers and really operating in enemy territory. And that's going to include some rebels and some false teachers. They wouldn't submit to Paul's leadership. They had um, been active in attacking Paul's leadership style and his right to lead, and they had attempted to undermine the doctrine Paul had delivered to the church. Now, on the outside, they seem spiritual, no doubt. People who are troublemakers often do in the church. They look like they're spiritual. They seem to say spiritual things. So how do you tell if what's on the inside is the same as what's on the outside, if they are not what they seem? There's been lots of errors continually bombarding the church here in Corinth for some time, and we've looked at some of those in 1 Corinthians. We've pointed out in this letter as well. And, and although we know some of it, we don't know all of it. And Paul isn't clear about what the errors are. It's easy sometimes as you go through Scripture to find out what the errors are. Look, if you would, just quickly as we get our footing here to Matthew chapter 5. Here's some examples before we get into our study today that are obvious. So the scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, market correction, and instruction in righteousness. So as we read through, we know some of those errors, and here Jesus makes it clear. As he speaks to those who are following him, he's kind of correcting the trend of thought in religious circles. And he says in verse 21 of Matthew 5, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell so what are the errors the errors are that they thought it's just the action of murder that was the problem and that was just liable to the court but jesus says you know if you're angry with someone you're going to be guilty for the court just in your own heart he said if you um if you say to somebody, you, you're good for nothing, you're worthless, you're, you're going to go to even higher court just by saying that, you should, and then whoever says you're a fool is guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. So a whole realignment uh, of correcting errors and obvious errors. Verse 23, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there, re and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there and before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come back and present your offerings what's the error they thought they could come and worship the lord somehow and it would be appropriate and that whatever they were bringing the lord would recognize and what did jesus correct he said listen it doesn't really matter what you're bringing and it doesn't really matter what you're saying if you have a problem with someone in fellowship you're supposed to go fix that and then come back otherwise the the uh, the offering and the worship is meaningless and, and you you get this on down uh, verse 27, it says, uh, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's the error? You know, you just thought that it was okay uh, if on the outside there were no obvious issues, but Jesus said really on the inside is the problem. You're supposed to be taking care of your thought life and keeping that in check. That's really the issue. And so you see that, and 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 it's it's obvious, and there's some others that I want you to see. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 6. Just turn back there. And I had a bunch more, but I, I think that you get it. It's, um, it's not difficult to grasp. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, so just flip back, or just flip forward, if you will, to Matthew 6. It, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. What's the error? 
It's likely the same that's going on in the Corinthian church. There's a lot of apparently spiritual people, but what's on the inside isn't spiritual. So you're trying to practice righteousness so that people will think you're righteous. Your, your goal is for people to think you're holy, and that's exactly what you'll get. And then he says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So you're practicing to make sure people think you're holy. They'll think you're holy, but the Lord uh, isn't, isn't uh, impressed. Verse 2, it says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. In other words, don't make a really big check to put it on TV or in the picture so people can see how much you gave. Uh, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's an error. You're trying to make men notice how generous you are. Well, that's what they'll think, but the Lord doesn't think that. He says, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full, verse 3, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. See, the Lord knows what's going on in the heart, and it's going on then in action, and then the Lord says, I understand that, I'll reward you for it. So it's not always apparent what's on the outside is necessarily what's on the inside. Paul is certainly dealing with this in the church. He says, um, but when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. What's going on? People are standing up, they're praying out loud, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, Paul tells Timothy that we are to pray, and we're, all, and we're to read the word before men. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is praying so that people will think you're spiritual. You're using words so people think, wow, they're really theological and really reflective and really... Um, are in touch with the Lord, and you're doing that so people will think that instead of praying to the one you're supposed to pray to. So he says, listen, that's the error. Just do it in secret, and I'll see what's done in secret. And don't just keep saying meaningless things over and over again. You've heard people kind of like that, the source prayers, you know, that just keep using different words for the same thing. He says, don't do that. Just pray, and and you suppose with your many words that the Lord's going to hear you know, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. And so obvious errors and corrected by Jesus. We can see that. Jesus identified them. Paul identified error. James identifies error in James chapter 3, verse 10, and he says this. He says, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be. Does a fountain send out the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives and vine produce figs, nor salt water produce fresh? So what's the error? You know, the mouth blesses and curses. It's not, it's not supposed to be that. At church, you're one way, and then when you go out in the world, you, you use a mouth that's similar to the way the rest of the world speaks, and you're thinking in your mind that that's an error. See, but it's not obvious, is it? Because at church, it may seem a certain way, but it's not like that. And James just says, listen, that's an error. Don't do that. Uh, it ought not to be that way. And the scripture is given to us for this purpose. Obviously, it's, we're supposed to hold up the holy standard. That's the reason why we are in the Word each week and each day of the week, as I encourage you to be. Uh, the Lord's designed His Word to be read that way. You should be reading it, and along with the worship and the prayer time and the reflection that comes along with it, it's holding up a holy standard and saying, uh, this is what the Lord expects for you to do, and so we conform, and that's called sanctification. Uh, time spent in the Word, reflecting those kinds of things. What does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Those things begin to go to work in your own heart as you take those to heart and realize they're not just written in a vacuum. They're written for us to conform. God's, God's, uh, God's commands are not optional for us. They're not big suggestions. When he says to do it, we're to do it. And so we understand that. And, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is very clear. All Scripture is inspired by God, so it's God-breathed. That's what that means. We've studied that. And it's profitable for teaching, so giving the instruction that you need for reproof, so bringing you uh, up on error, calling it out, and for correction. So what's wrong is then can be made right. 
and for training in righteousness so you know how to live. And it's profitable for all those kinds of things. And when you come to church and when you spend time in your word, in the word privately, those are the things that should be going on. There should be some teaching. There should be some reproof when you know you're wrong. There should be some correction of wrong thoughts and actions. And there should be training for righteousness. So you read those things prophylactically and realize this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I know the direction I'm supposed to go when that comes up. And it's all done, verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the word of God isn't, isn't one opinion among a lot of, of uh, variable other ones. It is the authority. And we said, as we read uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, as we talked about the type of weapons Paul was talking about in spiritual warfare, that the word of God is the offensive weapon, and that is the truth. And by that, all, all things are measured and all standards are established. Now, back to our text. Flip back over, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 10. Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, and his, he is addressing those who are proffering error. He doesn't make it clear what all those errors are. As we saw in Matthew, we saw clearly what the error was. We saw in James clearly what the error was. Here we don't know exactly what those errors are. But a lot can be learned by observing the habits and the character of those who are doing the false teaching. So Paul really takes that track. And Paul's going to do that here. He's, he's going to defend himself, and he's going to defend his character, and he's going to dis- expose those who are leading the church astray, and he's going to have a lot to say about their character and their habits. So ultimately, we don't need to know exactly what all the problems in the church were, although the Bible is clear uh, in, those, in those passages we looked at, what the errors are, and we've seen them in other parts of 1 Corinthians. Here, we don't really know all the stuff that's being taught. We don't all know all the stuff that's being done. But, and Paul's going to be carried along to tell us some of those things, but the thing about error, I think that's really important, is, and knowing what the Word of God says allows you to identify that error. So as I encouraged you as we closed chapter, or verse 6 out last time, that you, if you want to be in spiritual warfare, you're going to need to know what the Word of God says. There's no way you're going to be able to identify truth if you don't know what, uh, identify falseness if you don't know what the truth is. And so the thing about error that's important is that throughout the church age, error really doesn't have any one identity, if you think about it. And I just mean, it's not just one thing that keeps popping up over and over again. And to support that, if you think about the average non-believer, and we've kind of used that as our target as we looked through verses 1 through 6, you think about the average non-believer, they're shored up in a tower of their belief system. They believe it's impregnable. They believe that they're in a place that can't be assailed. They've got this idea of how things are and what things should be. That, and that person would look at certain philosophies or look at the religions of the world or look at moral ethical standards. They would probably say, and you've probably heard this many times, that there are lots of options to choose from. The average unbeliever would probably say, as they look at religions or if they look at moral options, if they look at philosophies, they'd say there's a lot of different options to choose from. And I think that you've heard that, and we hear that a lot. And they would and do say there are all kinds of religions and there are all kinds of ethical codes and all kinds of moral standards, and 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 they all have some merit. In fact, uh, Joe Biden just two days ago said, as he talked about China and the abuse that's going on with the Muslims in China, said, well, every country has their own set of standards and things that they say are important, as, as if somehow that there's some merit to what they're doing. But this is common. It's not unusual. He's not the only one who doesn't own that. So people say that, you know, all have some merit, and they're equally right. But that's not true, is from an eternal perspective, there are only two categories. They're either right or they're wrong. And that seems obvious enough, but I think it's important to point it out. Because in our culture, it's just, well, that's a nice opinion that you carry, 
but we're not talking about opinion here. We're just talking about the authority of the Word of God and whatever it says, that's right, and everything else is by its very, by its very existence. If it's in con- contrary to what we understand from the Word of God, it is wrong, and we can say that. See, and, and there's just a lot of wrong ones, a lot of them. Satan and demons, if you think about this, who proffer error, they don't care what people believe, mark it, as long as they don't believe the truth. And I know you know this because we looked at this last time. There's only one source of truth, and that's the Word of God. And everything that disagrees with the Bible is an error. And it's important, and I think it's important we say this, because in this upside-down world that we're living in and the things that are coming to us, particularly with this whole Equality Act and all of that, listen, that whole thing is upside down. It is just one error after another. And I think it's important then that we reset to this point because it's just that cut and dried. If it disagrees with what the Word of God says, then it's wrong. And if you think about it that way then, error, wherever it is or whatever it is, does not exist for itself. It's generated by the father of lies. And in fact, we know this in John chapter 8, verse 42 as an illustration. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day and they're arguing with him about his authority and the words he's giving them and, and correcting um, their error and their thought and their actions. He says this, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. So it's just very clear. You know, they hate him, but then they claim God's their father. He just says, listen, if God was your father, you would love me. So it's just very cut and dried, right? For I have proceeded forth and come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative. But he sent me. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? And then he gives the answer. It's because you cannot hear my word. That's the context. Uh, Now, mark this next sentence. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. And that really, if you wanted to sum up the position that most unbelievers occupy, that would be it. In some form or another, they have listened to the father of lies and they've been proffered over the ages and they have bought into that and that becomes their strong tower in a place where they shore themselves up and they believe they're right. So that's the position that they're in. And, but Jesus said, you know, whatever the evil one says is a lie. And if you think about this, how many things do you think he and the other unholy angels, demons, have said since the beginning of creation? How many lies do you think have they proffered? Hundreds of millions, no doubt. We know from the variety of falseness that's around us that there are a lot of lies that are out there, no matter where you look. So it's not that some certain error is trying to, you know, establish itself Uh, which is why I'm so appalled when I see Muslims killing Muslims or Hindus persecuting Muslims or vice versa, because they're both wrong, but they're persecuting the other person for what they think is wrong, but they're both wrong. And it's just so horrifying to me that they've bought an error and then they're slaughtering one another because they don't, the other person doesn't buy the error. See, and I believe for Satan, the father of lies and the demons, they don't, they don't really care uh, what form the error takes. See, as long as it obscures the truth or it makes the truth seem like error. So it really doesn't matter, does it? They, they don't really care what the lie is. It doesn't exist for itself. Most of them are absolutely foolish. And mark it, I think this is super important. You know, demons and Satan are not unclear about the existence of God. 
Demons and Satan are very certain about Jesus' position and what he accomplished on the cross and all the, all the victory that occurred there in rising from the dead. There's no shadowy, I, ho- I wonder if that's true or maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. They were around, they saw it. So it's not like they don't know what the truth is. So understand that it's, he's just the father of lies and he's just propagated lies. So it doesn't really matter what the lie is. Just as long as it obscures the truth or makes the truth seem like error, that's sufficient. And, and if you really want to expose how they work, if you use the Old Testament, I'll just kind of put these together for you so you can kind of see them all lined up side by side by side. You can see how it just doesn't really matter what the lie is. It's just made to bring people away from the truth. If you, if you look at the Old Testament, demons don't really care if it's Adremelech or, or Asherah or Baal or Shemosh of the Moabites to whom they sacrificed their children or, or Molech of the Ammonites who, again, children sacrificed on an altar to them or Dagon of the Philistines, who they attributed a good harvest, or Golden Calf, or Tammuz, worshipped by the Babylonians, and the Jews, to whom they attributed a good harvest. Or or if you fast forward into the New Testament, it it doesn't matter if it's Diana or Artemis in the temples where immorality was practiced, or Jupiter, or Zeus, or Mercury, or Hermes. it's It's just one lie after another. It doesn't really matter. It's just whatever one interests you, that's the one that's there. There's enough out there so everybody is occupied. And in our modern times, demons probably don't care uh, if it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. They don't care which, which lie you buy. They don't care if people sacrifice their children to Shemosh or Molech or the God of expediency and political correctness. Because it's just a lie all the way around, see. They probably don't care if people are mystics or Gnostics or atheistic naturals. Whatever appeals to the, the unredeemed. And I think it's just obvious when we put them all together like that, the demons don't really care what someone believes as long as they don't believe the truth. And Satan, in his subtle, devious, fallen wisdom, has concocted enough schemes to interest everybody. So the issue is not to get them all to buy into a single system, but to get them all to market, buy out of a single system. See, Error is just to get everybody to buy out of the truth. It doesn't matter what the error is. It has one single focus not the truth. We don't want the truth. So there's not a lot of equally merited choices, as most unbelievers would say. There's only one choice, and that's the truth, or everything else is wrong. Okay, so we've established that, I think. So when we look at the passage, a lot of people ask the question, so what's the problem in the Corinthian church here? Well, it's not always super clear, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Because whatever it is, it's made to bring people off course and to cause trouble and undermine Paul's authority and all of that. So when we think about Paul confronting all that error then, and, and informing uh, the believer to be ready with the truth and, and to be able to attack the high tower so they can be thrown down, he doesn't have to always identify the error or the falsehood. Why? Because it's going to be different throughout the ages. There's just going to be all kinds of choices. You just have to know what the truth is so you can identify the error, see. He knows for the error to get a hearing, those who are bringing the error and the falsehood in must undermine Paul's authority and his teaching to do it. And so he's just making an example of what faithfulness is supposed to look like so that people can say, well, who do I believe? There seems like a lot of choices. So what Paul's going to do again is he comes into, into, into verse 7. It's what he really hates to do. And this is defend his qualifications and his leadership so the church is going to trust him. You say, well, there seems like a lot of choices, Paul. I mean, these guys who are false teachers coming into the church, they're saying this, and you're saying this. So who, who are we supposed to believe? 
And we know this is a new church. We know this is new believers in an island of paganism. And they're growing, but they've had some trouble. And Paul's had to write a bunch of letters to help correct him. He's had to make a couple of visits. And so we understand they're struggling. So uh, he is going to, again, do what he hates to do. And, and then by his qualifications, let them know that they can trust the things that he teaches uh, are from the word of God and thereby singularly true. And that dismisses anything else that they may hear. And that's the whole point, I think, of the passage, which why well, it seems so complex. But I think as we break it down simply like that, and realize he's not naming each error and then saying this is what you do. And, and then when they say this is what you say, he's just saying, listen, in general, you can trust what I've taught you. He spent 18 months there. He spent a lot of time writing. And so he's just going to go back and say, okay, how do we know that the teacher is right? And, and I think that's important for today because it's easy uh, to see that Christianity is really flooded with false teachers who deny the authority of Scripture. It's flooded with them. Progressives who deny the ability to understand the clear meaning of Scripture and its application, and, and charlatans who pervert the gospel and misrepresent Jesus and, and, and all the nuances of falseness. Paul defends himself here then and helps us identify a faithful teacher and a faithful ministry, and that's going to be, I think, very clear for us and helpful. So the question is, how can you tell a true messenger of Christ? How do you know? What's the criteria? How do you evaluate them? Because when Paul gives his when he gives his credentials, that then becomes a way that we can say, okay, um, the, the things we're listening to, the things we, the, the small group studies we buy, the, uh, the videos we watch on, on the internet, all those kinds of things, we can tell uh, whether this is true or this is false by some of the things that Paul's going to say. That's how we're going to work through the passage. I think that's the intent of the Holy Spirit here for us. And, and, and that's what we're really going to start seeing th- from verse 7 through verse 18. So let's get to it. Look at verse 7, if you would. Paul starts this way, he says, and he's dealing with uh, the church, and then he's dealing with the false teachers who are in the church, informing the church of other things that they should be doing. He says to them, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Paul says, your problem is you're looking at things superficially. Your problem, you're looking on the surface. It's a fleshly point of view. And so he's by default asking, can't you go a little deeper? That's what implied. And that goes well with, look at verse 10 right there. Just skip up to uh, three verses. He says about uh, the church, that and this is what they're saying about him, this false, false teachers particularly, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So they're looking at personal appearance, aren't they? They look at Paul and just say, this guy is really weak when he's with us. And they're just discounting him because he just doesn't seem to have a, a great personality, doesn't seem to have a great persona. And, and he recounted, remember from verse 1, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. That's their words. He's pushed back to them. Uh, They're trying to undermine Paul, and these are the things that they say. Paul says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. Their evaluation of him is superficial. Uh, And the church had more than enough evidence to evaluate him correctly. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, we looked at a number of years ago, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul Again, doing back here what he hates to do. He's saying, you know the story of this Damascus Road conversion. They knew he'd seen the glorified Christ. They, and, and, and he says, besides, are you not my work in the Lord, he says? Um, look a little deeper. See what's, what's uh, on the inside. If, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. So, so how can you tell a true messenger of Jesus? Here's the first one. Mark, this is the first mark of a faithful leader. So the evaluation of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, as Paul says to the church, you need to trust me on this in this error, trust what I'm saying, isn't going to be based on cool clothes and smooth speech. 
okay? Skinny jeans and a cool shirt and, and a really cool hip stage and all of that kind of stuff and, and really fancy lighting and, and creating a kind of, of a, a aura or whatever. Okay, that's not the test. That's on the outside. The inside is look at the outcome of his life. Look at the outcome of his life. And you have to look closely. And that's why we skimmed over 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 a few months ago. We're going to go through those at length after we finish our study in Corinthians. Here's the question to ask if, if you want to look a little deeper. Do his children walk with the Lord? Does he love his wife singularly? Does he reject the love of money? Does he have good testimony in the community? Does he avoid the appearance of evil? Is he apt to teach, which means he's able to break the word of God down and give it out in a way people can grow? That's what it means to look a little deeper. Paul says, I know you look at my outside and I'm not very impressive. And, and the false teachers say, you know, Paul really can't hold his own as an orator. When he comes, it's just pathetic. He, his speech is contemptible. And, and you've probably heard this, and it's true. The uh, pastor, Jonathan Edwards, whose ministry career was responsible for the Great Awakening Revival in America, preached in monotone. Did you know that? He actually preached in monotone. I've read and I've got a book of, of his sermons. I've read a number of them. and I've tried to do it in monotone and just to listen to myself and think, could, I, could that keep my attention? But actually they said that he looked at the bell tower rope in the back. That's all he looked at. And he, and he preached in monotone. No inflection, no emphasis, no extemporaneous words, no rabbit trails. Just whatever message he'd written. And he was responsible for the Great Awakening Revival in America didn't have anything to do uh, with his oratory ability. It had everything to do with his ability to teach the word and people to lock in on what he was saying and not worry about what he looked like and how he presented himself. And, and the criticisms, if you read the criticisms, even modern criticisms now of people who study Jonathan Edwards' work, it's, it sounds just like what they said about Paul. It's, it's not that much different. Same issue he addressed, Paul addressed in 2 Corinthians 5.11. He said this, he said, um, Paul said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, mark this, but we are made manifest to God. In other words, God understands what we're about, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. In other words, Paul says, I hope you understand what we're really about. We are not, again, committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Paul says, as he shares his heart with them, he says, um, I hope you can see the true spiritual nature of our ministry. And then he says, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, mark it, and not in the heart. So he's still dealing with the same kind of person, right? People who take pride in appearance, they think that that's the most important thing. Your presentation, the cool stage, the cool lights, the cool clothes, and, and the smooth words and all that, that somehow is going to give validity and, and connect to an audience. And Paul says, listen, you have to look deeper than that. It's not, this is not what you're about. This is not what I'm supposed to be about. The ones who are all about the flash and the smooth talking, like, progressives of today you know we can't possibly know the mind of God about a lot of these modern things because he's so lofty and then they attempt to undermine the church and evangelical ministers by saying you know the church has caused a lot of hurt because uh, you know in the name of Christianity by claiming to use the scriptures you know as if somehow they're really spiritual and and because you use the scriptures to address LBGTQ RSTUVWXYZ and and all the other things um, you must you know you've really damaged the church see but we, we understand we can't possibly know the mind of God on this, and, and he's just so lofty and above us. Does that help the church? Is that, is that helpful to, to believers? Does that make the church stronger? No, but it sure sounds good, and you can build a huge church if you say stuff like that. 
Because you can attract everybody and everybody feels comfortable. Every unbeliever in your church feels completely comfortable. Is that what the church is about? I would challenge you to say this. Find a place in the New Testament where the church is anything but where the saints meet. Please show me that. Because you're not going to find it. And yet Paul says, this is what they're saying about him. You're just so superficial, Paul. You, you got nothing going on. You, you're not interesting when you come. We don't want to really hear you. Paul says, look, look a little deeper, okay? And so, you know, when they say stuff like this, they're trying to undermine Paul, just, just, like, just like progressives do. They don't want to undermine the church. They want to undermine uh, verse-by-verse teachers because you can't possibly know what that means. And so the, the understanding of the Word of God and the clear meaning of the Word of God is thrown out the window. There's no way you can possibly interpret it correctly. See, it's like the perfect storm in Christianity because when you say, well, the Word of God says, well, you can't possibly know what that means. It's hard to, it's hard to answer back to that, isn't it? So Paul says, look a little deeper than the outside and remember this. You know, look at the next part of the verse, verse 7. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, and mark that right there, just like today, these guys are claiming a superior relationship to Christ. So they come in and they say, you know, I'm confident that I'm Christ's. That's what the false teachers are saying. You know, I'm Christ's, and I'm very confident. And this is a Greek conditional statement, so it assumes something's true. So the question is, on what basis is it true? So, in himself, that's what it says. If anyone is confident in himself that he's Christ. So, it's his own personal opinion. The false teacher comes in and says, I'm in Christ. Okay, so, so what is this conditional statement based on? Well, it's just based on my, wor- on my word. I, I'm telling you that I, I'm in Christ. It's his own personal opinion. It's his own personal claim. There's no record of ministry. There's no record of the fruit of that ministry. See, there was no record of a Damascus Road experience, which the church knew. There was no record of personal communion with Jesus and no people to testify to the reality of that. See, and, and, and there was, uh, with Paul, there was no Ananias to talk about Paul's blindness and how he was healed and sent to preach to the Gentiles. There was no uh, Barnabas going around uh, telling people, you know, the power of Paul was evident in the great miracles and the proclamation of the truth that he was doing. They couldn't say they'd been caught up to the third heaven and heard and seen things that no one else had heard and then given a thorn in the flesh so that they wouldn't be haughty about it. No, these guys didn't have that. They just said, well, I'm in Christ. I, I was listening with my son the other day to an interview with the progressive and, and with uh, what we would consider a conservative evangelical. And, and the things the progressive was saying was much just like that, just, just, just claims, you know, um, Conditional statements that just are backed up by, well, this, this is where I am. I mean, and, and I'll, I'll take the Christian perspective because there's really not another one that fits better. As if somehow that's, a, that's an, a nod towards the Word of God. So there were believers everywhere Paul had been in churches who could speak to the validity of Paul being in Christ. Not like they couldn't check. And these guys are coming and they have nothing but the claim. I'm just claiming this. They're confident and they're self-assertive and they're standing up and they're saying they're his and he says he's Christ and you ask him why and he says because I said so. Confident in himself, claiming for themselves. Now, now what does uh, this guy Paul is addressing mean here when he says that he is Christ's? Well, a couple of things it could mean. It's just for free here, but it would mean that he's a Christian and you would think if he's in the pulpit he probably would like, I mean he should be. I can't really say that now as I look at at what goes on in the world today in, in the name of Christianity, in the name of the church, I can't even say that the guys who are leading churches are even born again. In fact, I would say a lot of times it would seem like they're not. If they can't understand even the basics of Scripture, how would you know enough to come to faith? 
Secondly, it, it could also mean that he has a unique earthly relationship with Jesus. So there's a special understanding, you know, with me and Jesus. It could mean that uh, he is Christ in the sense maybe that he is of the Christ party. Remember, as we started 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul is, is uh, taking on the church for this. He says, each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. There was factions in the church, and everybody's like, oh, well, I'm following the teachings of you know, Cephas, and I'm following the teachings of Apollos, and I, and I really like Paul. Oh, I'm of Jesus. You know, I, hang, I hung out with Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with him. And maybe that's what it means. And, and um, it could mean, thirdly, it could mean that he, he, this, this false teacher had an apostolic commission from Christ. And I think that's likely what... Um, what they're intending because uh, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen speaks to that and it says uh, such men are false apostles. So Paul just takes it on and just says this, this, they, they say they have this relationship, this commission um, with Christ, but they're deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So he's just calling it out. But ultimately, as we pointed out at the beginning, we don't really know what the falsehood is. We don't know what they're actually saying. We don't know what the lies are. It doesn't really matter because all that doesn't exist for itself. It's there to draw people away from the truth. And that's what's going on. That's why Paul's concerned. So Paul just says, look at the rest of it, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So in other words, Paul doesn't openly question the validity of the claim that this person is in Christ right here. He's going to do it pretty clearly in chapter 11, as we just kind of foreshadowed for you. He just says, if, if you can figure out that for yourself, that you're in Christ, then surely you're smart enough to understand that I have that same standing. If you think that you have a relationship with Christ, you should be able to look at my life and say, I do as well. Because it's just like today, whenever, whenever they're claiming for themselves, they were disclaiming for Christ, or for Paul. Whatever they thought was right about them, then they say, well, but Paul doesn't have this, see. Whatever the false teachers claim for themselves, they also claim that the mainstream church and those who lead it don't have. See? You, you don't have the Spirit. You don't, you know, the reason why you're not doing what we're doing is because the Holy Spirit's not working in your, in your church, and you just don't have enough faith or, or whatever, see. So they want to unseat Paul. That's obvious. They've already said that Paul's worldly. They've claimed, we saw earlier, that he was a deceiver and, and with a wicked hidden life and secret shame. And, and they just made all kinds of false accusations against Paul. Paul says to the church, you know, my life is open. My story is well known to you. You know how I persecuted and murdered uh, and I was a Christ hater and I arrested Christians and I hauled them to jail and I imprisoned them because, and, and I was all of that and then I became a lover of the saints. My life is open. You know my story. So, so back to the question. How can you tell a true messenger from Christ? How, how do you know? What's the criteria? How can you know that this is the truth and everything else is false? See, how can you evaluate that? How can you identify it? Well, true messengers of God walk with Jesus, and you can examine that. See, it's not just something they mouth from a distance. It's not something you never get close enough to see because false teachers are a lot like that. They never let anybody really close. They walk with Christ and their intimacy with him is clearly seen in their lives and in their impact and in their effect. And it's right back to Matthew 7 where Jesus says, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're, well, they're going to wear the right garment. They're going to look like they're in the right position. But inwardly, he says, they are what? Ravenous wolves. So they're going to come in and destroy you. And then he says, you'll know them by their what? By their fruits. So you're going to have to get close enough to see if there is fruit. And if you think about 1 Timothy 3, you've got to see if they do qualify. See, are those thing, the things that are there true because they're not just suggestions. If, if any man desires the position of an elder, he desires a good thing. And then it goes on and lists the qualifications in order for you to fulfill that position. So he says, you're going to know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. Are they? 
No, rhetorical. So every good tree bears good fruit, every bad tree bears bad fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor could a bad tree produce good fruit. You're going to have to look closely to find out what's going on. How do you know the true messenger of God? Look at his life. And that was the problem with Rabbi Zacharias, was it not? If you've been following that at all, you understand that after he passed away, they realized that he had lived a completely other life besides the one that was the persona on stage. And there's a lot of lessons we can learn about that, but I think the most important one was that Rabbi didn't let anybody get close to him. He traveled on his own, and nobody had the right to ask any questions. And when they did, they just were put aside, and that was it. And he got to do his whole thing, his whole life. And we find out then when he dies, uh, and and compliments to that ministry, they brought in an independent investigation and found out he lived his life completely opposite of what he told everybody. So how do you know if, if he's true or false? You're going to have to look closer than just the on-stage persona. And he's got to be willing to let you look closely. See? Nobody allowed to ask questions about life and habits. That's a problem. Charlatans and false teachers give the appearance of orthodoxy. They sound spiritual. They look like one thing on the outside, but they're not that thing. See? They wear the clothing. They seem sincere. They have biblical knowledge. They have the vocabulary. They make their assertions. But given enough time, what happens? The truth comes out. Give it enough time, the truth comes out. Some men's sins come along before them and other men's sins come along behind. Give it enough time, the truth comes out. Now look at verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. This is the second mark of a faithful leader, the evaluation of his faithfulness, to know that this is true and the rest of it is false. The trustworthiness isn't based on cool clothes and smooth speech. And what he says about himself, okay, it should be based on the impact on the church over the long haul. Paul says, no matter what happens, he says, I'll not be put to shame. I'm never going to have to eat crow. Because over the long haul, he's done what he's supposed to do. He's benefited the church. And, and that's the word, building you up. Oikodomen, that's a noun. It's usually translated edified. You've received edification. He says very simply this, if, if I'm forced by having to defend myself to boast somewhat further about my authority, which the Lord gave me, in other words, further, what's he mean? If I have to keep boasting about my apostolic authority here, about my right as an elder to lead you and tell you what's true and, and saying more than I care to because he didn't want to talk about it, he said only what needed to be said. He says, if I have to say more because of this debate and I need to defend myself and the authority that I have with you, I'm not going to be put to shame for saying it because I have edified you. I've edified you. That doesn't mean he didn't have to do hard things in the church. We know that he did. That doesn't mean that people didn't have to go or be put out. We know that that had to happen. We've seen it over and over again. Uh, that doesn't mean he didn't have trouble with some of the people. That's the reason for the passage. It, it means that the outcome of my ministry, Paul says, with you is you've grown in your faith and in sanctification, and you have evidence of your own life that you've grown. The church has been strengthened, it's grown spiritually, it's more sound than it used to be, it identifies sin better, it desires purity, it desires unity. See, those are the kinds of things that faithful ministry, as they meet these qualifications, produce, and that becomes the proof that what's being said is correct. So if you want to know if you can trust a uh, messenger, uh, then you add this to what you know already. What else do you need? Examine his life up close. And did he build lives? Did he strengthen the body? Teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And then the last part of that verse, building you up and not for a market. Destroying you, I'll not be put to shame. And who does the destroying? False teachers. 
tear up the church. That, that's the whole point in the passage for Paul, but it also has a broader application. And that's what happened with Rabbi, right? Was the church hurt when he did what he did? Because that's the word we know, destroying is catharesis. That's the dismantling. See, was the church hurt with what he did? Sure. Do you think the church in Asia is stronger since this revelation or weaker? Weaker. And every time Joel Osteen does something embarrassing, does that hurt the church? Of course it does. Of course it does. It tears down the church. It tears down its, its validity, its reliability. People mock it. They're going to mock it anyway, but this, they just give multiple opportunities for that to happen. See? How about Josh Scott, the pastor of Grace Point Church in the news this week? The guy out of Nashville. Did he build up the church when he said the Bible isn't the word of God? It isn't self-interpreting. It isn't a science book. It isn't an answer rule book. It isn't inerrant and infallible. Did that help the church? No, of course it didn't. He tore down the church when he said that because that's false, isn't it? But that's, that's the progressive mindset, see? We can't, know, we can't use the word of God like that. It's just he's, his mind is so far above us that we have to kind of continually interpret and love is love and, and all of that. And he destroys it. He tears down the lives of those who follow him. And now they, th- they don't think they're being destroyed, but you know, they're in their own towers of foolishness too and their bulwarks and their self-delusion. And they think, oh yeah, this is right. It's what I wanted to hear all along. I mean, Pastor Scott wrote this this week and it made it onto this, this um, atheist site that I read from time to time just to kind of see what they're commenting on. Because if they're commenting on it, it's probably worthwhile for me to read what they're commenting on. You know, because they're like, they've got antenna up all over the place. Oh, he said this. Oh, he said that. Oh, he's, he's denigrating this group of people. He's denigrating, you know. And, and the, the, the atheist side just said, you know, Josh didn't go far enough to denigrate the Bible. He needed to go much further. Okay. So did that help? No, that destroys the church. See, when they say stuff like that, you know, faithful teachers, faithful believers, they're supposed to destroy stuff, but they're just supposed to destroy fortresses of human wisdom and everything raised up against the knowledge of God because they have spiritual weapon to wage war and they destroy error, see? Believers are supposed to destroy error. But guys like this, they just destroy the church and Josh Scott and Osteen and Zacharias and, and dozens of others, okay? You don't have to look very far now look at verse 9. We're going to be done for today. We're out of time. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. This is what he posted. Uh, I should have got this up here. This is what he, uh, Josh posted on his, um, on his website. I just pulled it off. And um, so you could kind of see that I'm just not making this up. So this, this is a big, big explosion. Made it on Fox News. A bunch of news they reported. Wow, this is great. This is what we always thought. I mean, the Bible's not... You know, the Bible's not, uh, it's not the word of God. It doesn't interpret itself. Science book, answer rule book, and Aaron infallible. That's so stupid. See, that's what, that's what people have thought for a while now that he says it. They're like, oh, okay. Look at verse 9. I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. This is the third mark of a faithful teacher, faithful leader. The evaluation of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness is not based on cool clothes, smooth speech. What he says about himself... It should be based on his care for people. And how can you tell? How can you tell that he has care for people? Well, he serves them. For Peter chapter 1, verse 22, of course, this is for everyone, but also for ministers. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, what? Fervently love one another from the heart. First Peter 4, 10 as each one of you has received a special gift, 
who's received special gifts? Every believer. Employ it in what? Serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, so speaking gifts, is do it as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, serving gifts, as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. False teachers are personally absorbed. Uh, they usually don't have time for people. People mean nothing to them except as a means to their own end. Not Paul. Verse 9 says, I don't wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. He loves them. He doesn't, he doesn't want to create havoc in the church. It's not like he's trying to be, be uh, overbearing. Paul said to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, we'll close with this. He says, um, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. In other words, Paul's given his life up. It's, it's pouring out as he pours himself into them. He serves them. I rejoice, he says. It's okay. I'm being used up, and that's okay. And share my joy with you all. You too, he says. I urge you. Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In other words, I'm going to serve you until I'm used up like a drink offering. It's poured out. It's emptied. He says, discover the joy of doing that to one another. So there's some ways that we can identify uh, true teachers. Paul says, you know, I know you got a lot of error coming your way. I'm not going to try to address all the error. I'm just going to say what I've told you is true. And the way you can know that what I've told you is true and you can rely on me are these ways. We're going to see more of that starting next week. And so I think you can start getting a feel for how that's going to go. It's not as complex as it seems. And so I hope it's a blessing to you as we do that. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word and for the time we can spend together in worship and in giving and around your word. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that uh, edification has been accomplished here, that you have, through your word, uh, encouraged and corrected and instructed and reproved and prepared for good work everyone who is here. And as the teachers downstairs are teaching our little ones, I pray that will be occurring there too. We're grateful for the ministry you've entrusted us with in this day and in these hours of falseness and unfaithfulness and, and everything coming down from those who are in positions of authority, all the high towers and, and, and lofty places raised up against the knowledge of you, Father. I pray that you give us the truth through your word. Help us to understand what it is by reading it. Uh, reason the truth out of it, and then faithfully give it. A lot of disillusioned people. That's what happens when we have wicked leaders. Disillusioned people who don't understand what they should do and think perhaps because it's legal that it's right. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be salt and light until we, your son comes to get us. And we pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen.